Welcome to Data Brew by Databricks with Denny and Brooke. This series allows us to explore various topics in the data and AI community. Whether we're talking about data engineering or data science, we're going to interview subject matter experts to dive deeper into these topics. Now, in this season, we're going to continue our conversations on data leadership. And while we're, be, uh, well, while we're at it, we'll be enjoying our morning brew. Um, I'm Denny Lee. I'm a developer advocate at Databricks and one half of Databrew. And hello, my name is Brooke Wenig, machine learning practice lead and the other half of Databrew. For today's episode, I am thrilled to introduce Junta Nakai, global industry leader for financial services and sustainability at Databricks. Prior to joining Databricks, he spent many years at Goldman Sachs, where he most recently served as head of Asia Pacific sales for the Americas in the equities division. Welcome Junta. Thanks uh, Brooke and Denny, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we are a split vidcast podcast, and while we can see your background, can you share where exactly are you right now? Well, I know the, uh, the concept is, well, it's called data brew. And uh, when people think of brewed beverages, they typically think of coffee or tea, perhaps. But uh, another uh, popular brewed beverage that you might not know is brewed is actually sake. Uh, so I am a part owner of a sake brewery in Brooklyn, New York, and I am here right now. Uh, so I'll be enjoying my uh, glass of sake as we talk, uh, and uh, here I am. Amazing, love it. What is the name of your sake brewery? Oh, it's called uh, it's called Brooklyn Kuro. Here's a bottle. So if you uh, if you ever come by to New York, come visit our tap room, uh, and we're in a lot of different locations around the country as well. So uh, hopefully some of the listeners and watchers can uh, enjoy our sake as well. So I know we our title is Data Brew, but we're a little bit more data focused, a little bit less brew focused. Maybe we'll get to a bit more brew at the end. Um, but <laughs> to kick off our episode today, um, you're the head of our sustainability division at Databricks. I would love to hear a little bit more about what is ESG. Everybody's talking about it, but what is it and why is it important? Yeah. So, you know, ESG stands for environmental social governance. Um, and this term gets thrown around with the concept of sustainability as well. So you probably heard, you know, a lot of companies talk about sustainability, maybe a lot of politicians talk about sustainability. Um, sustainability, obviously, is is the notion that we should do things that are, you know, environmentally responsible or socially responsible, and it's typically a set of guidelines and principles. Uh, whereas ESG or environmental social governance typically encompasses the data, uh, the information that makes sustainability real. So the way I would characterize it, sustainability is again a framework. Um, ESG is the data and metrics around that that makes sustainability real. And it's really important for a multitude of reasons. And I'm sure, you know, if you Google ESG and sustainability, every company, you know, has a sustainability message now. But I think um, the, the, the way to kind of think about it is maybe threefold. There's kind of a, I would say, like a philosophical way to think about it, maybe an um, economic way to think about it, and then a um, tactical way to think about why it's important, right? So the philosophical one is, um, you know, you may have heard of a concept called the overview effect. So if you haven't heard of the overview effect, basically it's a phenomenon that astronauts experience when they go into outer space, right? So when you go into outer space and you look towards the sky, everything looks the same. It's black and you see some white dots all over the place. But the one difference is that when you look back on Earth, you realize how fragile it is, right? There's only a little thin layer, right, of gases that sustain, you know, all of us today. And from the you know, depth of the ocean to the top of the mountain, it's like 20 kilometers, right? It's, it's not a whole, it's a really, really thin, so when people and astronauts come back, they, they experience something called overview effect. And you, you kind of start to realize that, hey, there's nothing ine inevitable about our existence, right? Let's take care of the one Earth 
you know, that we have. And that's kind of the philosophical uh, way to think about it. The, the economic way to think about it, and I'm a, I'm a recovering banker, as, as you mentioned, and um, there's a whole concept of something called factors of production. And if you guys go back to Econ 101. And if you look at an economy and you think about the factors of production, it comes down to basically four things. Um, labor, so how many people you got. Uh, capital, how much money you got. Innovation, okay, like how much innovation. And basically the concept of land. And land is you know, just a set of natural resources, right? Like land, water, minerals, oils that a country has. So basically the four things that define how an economy grows. And, and labor and capital you know, are, are pretty, we're okay. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of money in the world. But land and entrepreneurship, right? These two things come hand in hand when you start talking about sustainability because obviously you know, protecting that resources you have is really important. But you know, focusing on solar energy, you know, um, you know, social justice initiatives, that unleashes a new type of innovation, right? So the land and entrepreneurship part come together. So from an economic perspective, I think it's really critical in driving growth not just for companies, but for you know the world overall. And and I would always say that you know economic growth has lifted more people out of poverty than charity ever has, right? So this is really critical, important to the success of you know humanity and stuff like that. The other one is just tactical, and and people always believe like oh I don't believe in climate change or climate change or I think ESG initiatives are all greenwashing and it's not really real. The way I think about that from a very tactical perspective is it doesn't matter, right? Sustainability to me is like Santa Claus. Um, you could believe it or you may not believe in Santa Claus, but the reality is, is the entire world operates on the, on the fact that Santa Claus, or the belief that Santa Claus exists, right? All the, all the shopping, all the messaging, all the marketing revolves around this concept of Santa Claus. So even whether or not you believe it or not, it's good business um, to, to focus on it because that's the, world, the, the way that the world is shifting towards. So I know that was a very long answer, but that's kind of the ways I kind of think about sustainability and why it's important for you know, not just us, but for all companies, all regulators, all investors, all consumers. Uh, in the world today. No, no, this is actually a great answer. I, I think it provides a lot of context for even people who have some semblance of knowledge of what ESG is. I, I think the, the fact you broke it down in terms of the philosophical to tactical actually is really helpful. And I really like the fact that you brought up this concept that like, you know, ESG, is a, it is actually about the data, the metrics. So then, I mean, that naturally leads me, you know, in, with, <laughs> with the data hat back on, how do you actually evaluate more to the word, the tactical, like if you're saying that, it just makes sense business-wise to do it, then I guess, well, then how do you evaluate? What are the mechanisms you would normally employ to be able to say, okay, we are in fact actually doing good or having good governance or having good sustainability versus not? Yeah, so you know, the way I characterize um, ESG is that at its core, it's a data and AI challenge, right? So, so think about it from, from this way, right? The whole, the whole point of why we're focused on this is ultimately to do good. Right? And the way companies start thinking about this when they start focusing on maybe reducing carbon emissions or increasing diversity or whatever, they quickly realize, hey, we have very little data around all this. Like, what is our carbon footprint? What is our diversity inclusion metrics? And that might, data might exist in different pockets, but you know, often it's, it's hidden in different you know, system silos, data silos also. So the first step is just being able to aggregate and put all that data together coming from your CRM systems and your you know, you know, uh, work, you know, uh, HR systems, your customer systems, all this stuff, and that's the aggregation um, phase. And then once you can have this ability to aggregate all the data, then you can start doing basic analytics on that data, right? So like, what is our you know, carbon footprint? And how, what are some of the steps that we could do to, to curb it, 
or where, what are some of the things that you know we can do to attract you know more diverse candidates into our workforce? You start to now start to analyze this data, and that's kind of step two. And then you know the third part of it. So you've kind of done the aggregation. Now you're doing the analytics. The third part is well, let's put it into action, right? And that's what again, this is the holy grail, and this is precisely why any of this exists in the first place is to actually do good, not look good. So, for example, you know, a real example is this, you know, next time you're flying a, say, airplane, uh, and there is a, a large engine manufacturer that manufactures that engine, that engine manufacturer is sending data, you know, back to the cloud, um, and then they're doing analytics, machine learning to optimize that engine performance, right? And by doing so, they save about 20, 22 million tons of CO2 per annum, by just by optimizing that engine and doing all the preventative maintenance also. So that's kind of an example of, hey, we have all this data, now we have this ability to analyze this, now let's put into action, build models, right? This is why I say it's a data and AI challenge, because when all those things come together, then you could actually start, again, to, to actually do good, rather than just looking good. So that's why it's such an you know, important data and AI challenge for um, all companies today. I love that. I especially like how you broke it down into aggregation, analytics, action. One thing I want to dive a little bit more deeply into is the idea of a diverse workforce. So previously, you, um, in previous interviews that you've done, you'd mentioned that diverse workforces financially perform better. Can you talk a bit more about the data behind that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of you know, academic uh, studies and Wall Street studies um, about this. But you know, one of the things that we did, and we had a, a wonderful speaker from Goldman Sachs at one of our conferences a few months ago, and, um, and, and, and she had focused on the whole concept of womanomics. Right, so her entire career was focusing on, hey, what happens when you empower women? And what happens to companies? You know, what happens to economies, et cetera, et cetera. And the punchline is very simple, right? You know, the, the more you empower a diverse workforce to, to succeed, um, if you're a company, you tend to have higher ROEs, right, which stands for return on equity. That's one of the most important metrics um, that you have as a company to drive share prices forward. You know, as an economy, you tend to have higher growth rates, Right? You, you tend to have higher labor participation. Um, you tend to have higher fertility rates and birth rates around as well. Not fertility rates, but birth rates. Right? So there's all these counterintuitive you know, ways about empowering people to, um, to, to work has tremendous consequences, both from an economic perspective, but also from a, sorry, a business perspective, from also from a countrywide sort of macroeconomic perspective. On the, on the company level at Databricks, we've done some um, interesting analysis on this as well. You know, High ESG companies, right? So companies that score well on environmental social governance, they tend to outperform the market. Okay, and this is you know lots of papers about this that you could read, which just kind of makes sense, right? It's you know they're more agile, they're more resilient, they can navigate COVID better, right? Because they're because of all the the wonderful things, they have more diversity, uh, diverse viewpoints, etc. The other way uh, that we've looked at it is how resilient are companies? So one of the research that we've done here at Dataworks is that, hey, let's take a basket of really high ESG companies, look at their share price. What is the volatility of that share price stock compared to other companies? And what we found is that high ESG companies, yes, they outperform. They also tend to have lower volatility in their share price, right? Which is really, but that makes sense because if you're operating your business in such a way that is inherently sustainable, right? Like you're, you're analyzing up and down the supply chain. You know what's happening at this factory that supplies you. And something like COVID hits, right? You're probably gonna be much more resilient. The supply chain shocks, right? Or, you know, um, workforce problems uh, because you've kind of created an ecosystem that is inherently more um, agile and resilient during times of tremendous change. And that, that, you know, all these things come together. And, and so and the punchline here is that sustainability or focusing on ESG, I believe, is good business 
as well, in addition to being good, you know, like holistically and philosophically um, at the same time. Excellent. Okay. So I'm going to shift gears, but still very much in the, in, in the same theme here. But w- w- I w- want to discuss, because we t- keep, you're talking about economic performance, right? So let's discuss a little bit about like a, like the S&P 500, and we're going to talk about the Databix 30. This is a precursor to that. But can we give a quick primer like to those who, you know, especially because we've got a bunch of the data folks here, right? Uh, maybe what's a, what's a primer? Explain how, how does index funds work even? Yeah, so you probably heard of things like the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones, or if you're in Japan, the Nikkei, or if you're in you know, England, the FTSE. This is basically a broad basket of all the important stocks in a country. So when you say, hey, the Dow Jones is up 50% of 50 points today and the Nasdaq is down 3% or whatever it is, it's just a reflection of all the important stocks in that particular economy. And it's really important because this is how, you know, the, the, for example, the S&P 500 in the United States is the crown jewel, right, of, of the, the U.S. economy. These are the 500 most important companies. So tracking the, the stocks of that performance uh, of those 500 companies give you kind of a broad sense of, like, the health of the economy and the outlook for the economy and all sorts of different stuff. So that's basically what an index is. And one of the things that, you know, we do, for example, is, again, as I mentioned, we did a lot of research about the most sustainable companies, right? But we also do research about things like, you know, what are the most data and AI-driven companies? And, you know, these two things will come together in the sense where, you know, you could kind of think about it philosophically and say, hey, companies that are focused on data and AI and that do it well, so let's say Uber, Twitter, Airbnb, like whatever those companies are, and you compare those stocks, right, against the S&P, you would expect these stocks to outperform the overall economy, right, because they're growing stuff. So, so that's basically why indexes are important because it gives you overall health of the economy, but it also gives you a benchmark, what everybody else is doing. Once you have that benchmark, you can now start to analyze companies based on different factors. Um, and that's why these two things are. Now, going back to what I said before, you know, if the bench slide of the S&P, let's say, is this, but sustainable companies are going up like this, you know, it becomes pretty clear that high ESG or high sustainability companies outperform. Right? So there is an economic value Right, or at least a market value from, from doing that. And that degree of outperformance is really important. There's also a you know correlation, causation, you know, argument, but there's also you know, but that's gonna exist for everything, right? So so that's kind of in between. There's interesting things that you could read into by looking and comparing um, companies against the benchmark. So that's why you know the, those uh, benchmarks are very important. Cool. So all right, related to this, now that you've set up the primer for the index funds, like <clears throat> I'm curious. You did author the the Databricks 30 index blog, which we'll actually attach to this uh, to this uh, descriptor here, and how it outperforms the S&P 500, which you know you've been calling out, like in terms of the index. Can you just from that standpoint, can you talk a little bit more about that Databricks Databricks 30 index fund and what it really represents? Sure. So um, you know I can't take credit for it because I I read this wonderful report from Morgan Stanley, so one of the big you know investment banks in, in the U.S. and they wrote this wonderful report. They said hey, companies that focus on data and AI, they tend to win, right? And they specifically said, hey, companies that focus on cloud, collaboration, you know, analytics, AI, they tend to outperform. So the research report that I read, they identified 38 companies where they thought these companies were succeeding at doing these things, and they compared their stock price, these, the basket of 38 companies, relative to the overall index, so let's say the S&P. And what they found is that these data and AI-driven companies outperform. Kind of makes sense intuitively, right? So the, when, I, when I saw this, I said, well, Databricks is cloud, 
right? Databricks is AI, Databricks is data analytics, Databricks is collaboration. So if it's true, our customers should outperform, right? So, so one of the things I did is I created an equal weight price weighted index. Kind of, you, know, you don't need to focus on that, those terms too much, but let's say we find the 30 most marquee customers of Databricks. Um, five by vertical, financial services, healthcare, media, et cetera. Put a basket of that together and let's compare that to the, to the, to the S&P 500. And the punchline here is that our customers vastly outperform their peers. And not only at the very broad S&P 500 index level, but when I do sub-segment analysis. So let's take, I did something called that, you know, FS20, which is let's take our top 20 financial service customers in the United States. And let's compare their share price versus what I, what's called the XLF, which is the S&P financial service index. Right, and that outperform is actually bigger, right? So, so in, in so in every sector that I've kind of done this analysis on, and I've been investment, it turns out that data and AI-driven companies succeed. They tend to outperform. And then, what's really interesting is if you look at the chart, is that you know up until March 18th of 2020, the index and the data was 30 kind of tracked each other, right? But around March 20, March 18th of 2020, they start to diverge, like this. Right, the outperformance grew. Well, why is that? Well, because March 18th was the first day of the lockdown, right? One of the major lockdowns in the United States for, because of COVID. And everything that I said before, right? Agility, resilience, you know, innovation, right? All the things that you need, data and AI and cloud computing and elastic computing, all these things that you need, those ten, things tend to um, matter most, right? When times get tough. Anyone can make money when times are good. You know, the strength of your business shines when times get tough. And crisis always brings the future faster. And COVID was certainly a crisis, right? So that just created you know, huge opportunities and ability for the most agile, the most resilient, the most innovative companies, right? To, to adjust their business models, right? To you know, adjust to a different type of workforce that's all distributed and still maintain that productivity, customer penetration and all this stuff. And you see that the outperformance growth during times of COVID. So that's basically what the Dataverse 30 um, shows. Again, correlation, causation, always a, up for debate for any index, but I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, do, do companies win because of Databricks or do winning companies or forward-looking companies choose Databricks? I think it's maybe um, you know, somewhere in the middle there. Whichever way it is, it's good for us um, here at Databricks. Uh, one thing I do want to slightly switch gears towards um, on the financial services side is throughout COVID, I have heard so much discussion about cryptocurrencies. I would love to get your thought on the crypto market and the sustainability of that. You know, I have to be uh, very careful because I know there's uh, fanatics out there, um, including uh, the founder, one of the founders of this brewery as well. Uh, but uh, I, I, think, I think cryptocurrency, I think there's multiple ways to think about it, right? The most basic way to think about it is, is it a store of value or is it a medium of exchange, right? So is it like gold or is it like coins, I guess, maybe, right? So if you think about Bitcoin, you know, I would argue that's more of a store value, right? If you look at stable coins, it's more of a uh, medium of exchange, right? This is how you, it's like a dollar is a dollar, you get to do it, you, know, you get to share it. So that's kind of one way to, to, to think about it. The second way is about crypto is how do I make money off of it? Right. And, you know, and that could be as simple as, hey, I'm going to you know, speculate and buy, you know, put my life savings into Bitcoin. Um, or, you know, people are saying, hey, like, I'm not going to speculate on the currency, but I'm going to sell people the, the picks and shovels, you know, kind of like in the gold rush. And, you know, when I look back at my time at Goldman and I look back at and look at all the things that people have done post leaving Goldman Sachs, the majority of the people that I know 
have chosen to go to the picks and shovel route, right? Not the speculation route. So, so when you think about like, how do I make money in crypto, it's not just about the investing, right? And, and I think that's kind of a really interesting kind of um, dichotomy there. And the last way to think about it is regulation, right? Like that's probably, in my opinion, the biggest risk for just cryptocurrency. I mean, there's DeFi and all these wonderful applications for it, but from a cryptocurrency perspective, regulation is probably the biggest, you know, one of the biggest things that you have to think about. Right? So, you know, the United States is the world's reserve currency. Right? The dollar is used to price oil, price commodities. Right? It's, it's the medium of exchange around the world. So we enjoy enormous privileges as a result of that. Right? So think about it from the U.S. government's perspective. Right? Do you ever want to give that up? I don't know. But with that comes, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. So think about all the consumer protection laws that exist, uh, the financial stability you know, things that are done via monetary policy or fiscal policy, um, all the uh, crime prevention, anti-money laundering, all the things that, that... So all this is embedded in this ecosystem. Now, all the things that I just mentioned, consumer protect, protection, um, you know, um, uh, uh, crime prevention, financial stability, as of now, you know, as an investor in Bitcoin, you don't appreciate, you don't, you don't get any of those things, Right? So, like, it's, you know, it's great if you have, you know, if you, you think about people who make gazillions of dollars, you know, invest in crypto, but you know, it's different from a hedge fund allocating $10 million of a $1 billion portfolio into crypto versus an individual putting all his or her life savings in it because a hedge fund just cares about optionality. They're like, you know, I have a billion dollars. I'll put $10 million into Bitcoin and all these currencies. It works out? Great. It's, it's just a bet on optionality. And oftentimes, I don't know if it's necessarily a, you know, a fundamental view that these professional investors have, or just, hey, you know, if it works out, great. And you know, I think one of the, the, the concerns that I have is you know, people are just putting everything into you know, to, to one, you know, one asset class and just think that you're gonna be able to, you know, um, to, to make a whole lot of money from that. But uh, you know, I personally think fiat currencies are great. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like all the consumer protections, the stability, the laws, the, you know, FDIC insurance, if your bank, you know, bank goes bankrupt, you're still going to get your deposits back. You know, all these things are really, you know, we benefit tremendously um, from that um, just by, you know, doing the, using the dollar in a sense. So I'm sure I'm missing out on, you know, a lot of the, the big latest innovations, but that's kind of how I think about that um, today. Yeah, I really like that balanced look and then also separating out the professional investor from the individual investor. Um, if you were to leave people with a piece of advice about financial understanding, the markets, what would you want them to take away? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, you know, uh, well, maybe, maybe two things, um, maybe somewhat unrelated, but, you know, we're very fortunate that we live in a place where we could invest in the U.S. stock market, right? The U.S. stock market has been the single largest generator of wealth in the history of humanity. Right. And, you know, anyone basically, unless you live in North Korea, I don't know how many you know, people listen to their podcast in North Korea. You know, anyone could basically invest in the, in the stock market and, and benefit from, you know, from the, the, the wealth creation that it has provided. And, and I'm not talking about wealth creation, the, hey, the stock is going to go up 30 percent next month. It's like the course of your lifetime. Right. You know, the S&P has historically returned about 10 percent ish, you know, and, you know, if you compound that over 10 or 20 years, that's incredibly important, right? The concept of compounding because it's a productive asset, right? Stocks give you dividends. You can reinvest those dividends. You know, also example of non-productive assets actually crypto because crypto. I know there's some changes happening, but most cryptocurrencies will not give you dividends, 
right? So it's not like, it's not a productive, it's not like farmland where you could use it every year to, to grow corn and, and grow more corn and invest back into, you know, that, that dynamic doesn't exist because of the, the interest rate. So that's kind of one thing is that, the one thing to take away is that we're incredibly blessed to, to be able to invest in, in stocks in a sense, and that, you know, compounding is, is the most powerful mechanism you have um, to generate uh, wealth over time. Um, and the, the second kind of unrelated thing, I just want to bring it back to kind of data um, in sustainability for a second, if that's okay. But, you know, I, I just want to give you a very practical example of like how, for example, Databricks uses data, right, to, to, to advance our sustainability goals. So if you saw, um, you know, early, sorry, uh, mid, mid-September, uh, we announced that we are now part of the, the fair, uh, fair pay, uh, fair pay uh, workforce or something like that, fair pay certificate. Um, that Databricks has. So we're one of the six company, leading companies where a third party has come in, you know, rigorously analyzed the data around our, our pay, right, and look for gender gaps or whatever. And they said, hey, you know, this is a company that actually walks the talk, right? Equal pay for equal work, right? And so that's an example of how, you know, a data-driven approach to things like diversity and inclusion, Right, is incredibly important because now we have this, what are the practical implications for Databricks, right? I would argue probably helps us retain the best talent, right? It helps us recruit the best talent. So here's just an example of just taking a, a data-driven approach to a problem, right, like this, like it's, it's a specific ESG problem, has tremendous benefits for, for Databricks as a company, but also has a tremendous benefits for you know, employees um, alike. So, um, you know, you could think about sustainability as either an obligation, which some people think about, but I, I think in much more terms in the sense of opportunity, right, both for companies, individuals, and I think the same thing can be said about stocks, right? So, again, companies that are highly sustainable, highly focused on that, over the next decade, they're probably going to outperform, I think. Um, they're probably going to be better equipped to succeed in the new era or the new world that we're kind of, you know, ushering into. So, first of all, wonderful, very insightful. Uh, second of all, um, when you talk about sustainability, this is a horrible segue, by the way. <laughs> you talk about you talk about sustainability, but now we also want to talk about enjoying enjoying that sustainability. So my question invariably is going to go back to Bruce. So for starters, I want to really understand what made you even think to go ahead and create a sake brewery in New York. Like what 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 got you into even doing this? <laughs> So, you know, as, as Burke mentioned, I worked on Wall Street for, for many years. And the story I tell is that, you know, when I joined Goldman Sachs in 2004, uh, there was probably 600 people trading stocks, right, the equity traders. When I left, there was probably like two or three, right? So you saw like 600 people and now there's two or three because it turns out trading is a job for algorithms, right? A machine can match trades better than a human can most of the time. So, you know, I kind of lived this experience of seeing change happening all around me, automation happening all around me. And then, you know, when I, at that point in my career, I kind of was like, hmm, like, I think my career go two ways. One is I run with that change, right? So, you know, if I think data and AI is the future, I better go work for a company that's focused on data and AI, which, you know, um, I'm, you know, I have the privilege of being able to do. But the second thing is the other way to think about it is like, I should do something so, you know, like manual labor intensive that just cannot be automated, right? Which is sake production. And you know, sake production is a very, very manual process. Um, you have to wash the rice by hand, you have to steam it, you have to cool it, you have to, you know, you might see some people in the back kind of like twirling it. And, and it's an incredible, it's a labor of love. And you really have to love it to be able to do it. 
So that's kind of as a, as a philosophical perspective of like, hey, you know what? If I do this and, and also do this, and it kind of puts me in the I kind of hedge myself um, both ways. But also, it's you know, it's groundbreaking in a sense where you know when we started thinking about this, you know, people said you can't make sake outside of Japan, right? You need Japanese water, you need Japanese rice, and you need all this and this, and they've done it for eight, you know, eight million years in Japan. Like, how are you going to be able to do it? And like, especially the co-founders are um, two Americans, um, you know, two hipsters from Brooklyn. And you know what we found is that you know when we you know every time someone said no, we're like, hey, we think we can do it, right? And when and once we found that the water quality is very similar to actually New York City water, it's phenomenal water. And I could talk all day about the water in New York, but New York City that's why our bagels are good, our pizza is good, right? New York is very soft. The characteristics are very similar to very nice Japanese water. Um, all our rice comes from Arkansas and California, so we use you know American rice. And the combination of that and bringing that in New York, you know, we make what I think is one of the best um, you know sakes. In the world, so you know it's a really unique, um, unique proposition, and uh, I really enjoy it because you know, like uh, you know, it, it just it just proves that uh, you know not everything has been figured out yet. You know, if you have the the grit and you know the vision and you know just the you know the passion for it, you could do anything. I think it's kind of an example of this, and of course I get to you know drink it while I do um, you know talk to you guys. That's another big perk of it as well. I love the resiliency that you and your co-founders had. So when everybody said no, that was actually a challenge that you'd wanted to overcome. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had found apart from just pushing back and actually creating the sake brewery? What were some of the obstacles you weren't necessarily expecting? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of obstacles. Um, but you know, like anything, you know, anything that's easy is probably not worth doing, right? So when we started talking about this, I mean, there were so many obstacles, right? Like equipment. Like, there is no sake industry outside of Japan. Where do we get a, a rice steamer to steam 200 kilograms of rice at the same time, right? So one of our co-founders, Brandon, is a you know, scientist by, by trade. He literally went to Home Depot. He went to go all these machinery shops, and he custom designed a giant you know, steel you know, tube where you can now, we have to build it ourselves, quite frankly. Or in Japan, another thing is there is a very specific uh, like a metal thing that you use. So basically, sake has multiple ingredients. One of the ingredients is a special enzyme that converts starch into sugar. And there's a very specific kind of metal thing that, that you use to kind of sprinkle the thing. We couldn't buy any of those, right? So we use a pizza shaker. So you know, those like red pepper things that you find at pizza, turns out that works fine, right? So there's all these kind of practical things of just like getting the equipment, right? And getting the talent together. I don't know, it's so regulatory. So, you know, like regulators don't know what to do with sake. We're the first and only sake brewery in New York. You know, is it a is it a beer? You know, is it a wine? You know, is it a spirit? You know, and, and the nuances of seem you know very minute to, to us, but from a regulatory standpoint, a taxation standpoint, it matters greatly if something is a beer or a spirit, right? And just as I mentioned, uh, sake is brewed. It's much more similar to a beer in how it's made, but the alcohol content is about thirteen or 14 percent. You know, it's much more similar to a wine. So if you're a regulator's perspective, is this a wine or a sake? Like, how do you think about that? And the punchline is it depends by state. So, so you know, I think we talked a little bit earlier. I think Denny's like, hey, can you ship me some? It, it, the answer is it depends what state you live in, right? So there's all these kind of, you know, uh, regulatory hurdles, you know, business hurdles, like talent and people hurdles that we had to, to, to overcome. But, you know, I always uh, quote uh, uh, Henry Ford. Uh, and I'm gonna paraphrase and uh, butcher it, but it's you know it's, it's always like you know whether think you can or you can't, you're right, right. So if you think you can't do it, you're right. But if you think you can do it, you're also right, 
So it's all about that, you know, just the forward looking and, and the grit and just, you know, doing it until you, know, you succeed. And, you know, fortunately, we've been, you know, um, you know, decently successful so far. Perfect. Well, Junta, this was an amazingly thoughtful, insightful, and very, not just data-centric, but very Bruce-centric session. We really enjoyed your t uh, uh, you uh, <laughs> joining us for this session. Thank you very much uh, for uh, providing us insight about ESG and insight about sake. No, thanks for having me. And uh, hopefully you guys can uh, visit me in person. We'll do this uh, in person, three of us at the brewery sometime in the future. Thank you.